0: jokerman the podcast about bob dylan a podcast about bob dylan
1: one of several presumably but yeah uh, potentially there, the best
0: there's some others but i don't i don't know are they really how are they really are they podcasts about bob dylan in the way that this is well, that's a good point i feel like this is the one that really is a committing to the podcast as a form.
1: Yeah, if Bob uh, if Bob was going to listen to a podcast about himself, I'd, I'd like to think he would listen to ours.
0: Yeah. He never would do that, I don't think.
1: Definitely not. But, you know, maybe he would think we're cool guys. Maybe. Um, maybe. You and he could bond over your shared love of the Malibu country mart.
0: Maybe. <laughs> wow. This is just, like, kind of fun to think about now.
2: Hmm.
1: See Bob at um um is Howdy's Mexican food still there? Well,
0: um, funny mention, uh it's not, but they just reopened um in like the fancy new section of the country like Whoa. adjacent to the country mart. There's an area that has like a Whole Foods and a blue bottle, coffee. Is there really? Yeah. And um Wow and I had no idea. And Howdy's has just reestablished itself there. Incredible. Um
1: I haven't been yet, but um I, I like the old Howdy's. Um, yeah, it was a nice little shack. Get a good, uh, you know, quesadilla, burrito. Yeah. A couple tacos.
0: All I know about this new Howdies is that they serve a sushi burrito, which seems, hmm. you know, I don't yeah. know. Eh.
1: Yeah, so it, it's for those kind of people. The
0: times, they are changing. Sure. Sort of what that song was about. Uh, today, though, what are we talking about? But uh two kind of two things actually
1: yeah we're talking about um well I, I guess really the the way to frame it right is the the year 1973 uh yeah. for bob which was uh his return after another couple years off basically we we last left off with new morning which came out in uh, late 70 i think uh, and now here we are uh not picking up again until 73, so he took 71 and 72 off completely in terms of, re- of releasing recorded music, and, and he, he, returns with, well, he returns with one record from this year. Um, a second record under his name is also put out that he wasn't necessarily proud of or interested in releasing, but I guess uh, we're going we're gonna to tackle both of them here today, right?
0: Right. The two records in question being Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the soundtrack album for the film by Sam Peckinpah, in which Dylan appears briefly, and also Dylan, the 1973 release, which is um, somewhat an unofficial, it's sort of non-canon. Dylan, at this time, briefly went to David Geffen's Asylum Records, left Columbia high and dry, and I think as a, a sort of feeble gesture to get back some of what they felt they lost there they put out this slapdash collection of outtakes without Dylan's involvement at all called Dylan and actually in the non-US version it was called A A Fool Such As I which uh, I think is maybe a better title because God, just to release like a collection of outtakes without consulting the man and put it under his name, like a self titled record,
1: it's kind of dirty. It's it's pretty funny. Uh, I mean, releasing releasing a record uh, as as a solo artist uh, that is just like your name, or or in this case, like your last name. There's there's something sort of like definitive about that. Like it, in, implied in the decision to release a record that is just titled your name, um, is this idea that this music is somehow like defines you uh, as as a as a recording artist, and so a you know especially for someone like Bob, <laughs> releasing a record called Dylan would would seem to imply you know this is the the real straight shit from the heart for him, uh, and in you know in reality it is uh, like you said a slapdash uh, it's a it's a cast grab really by Columbia, um, which uh, to be honest I'm glad that we have here um, you know fifty uh, something years later or forty something years later I guess uh, just as sort of a curiosity to uh, to listen to a couple times but yeah I mean it's definitely not something that Bob would have wanted just released as Dylan by any means
0: no not at all. And I think this whole episode is kind of going to be sort of it's a weird one because this this is all kind of half measures, sort of pseudo proper releases by Dylan. It's kind of like a ghost year of Dylan's career, where like the vagaries of the early seventies just kind of have congealed briefly into a Dylan shaped ectoplasm. But you're not really getting, like, you're not getting what you
1: want. Yeah, by this time in 1973, I would assume that if you're, a, you know, a real Dylan Head, uh, you're, you're jonesing for, for a new hit. And, um, you know, you, you kind of have to make do with what you got. And uh, in 1973, like we said, you get, uh, you get a soundtrack record with technically four songs that have lyrics on them. But uh, really, it's only two because it's one song recorded three times. And then you also get a, a collection of covers, some of which are not terribly compelling. I think it's it is interesting just to like think about this and situate it in time, right? Because like everything that we've talked about up until now has been part of like the initial Dylan's back phase, right? After um, after Blonde on Blonde, you got John Wesley Harding, and then you've got Nashville Skyline, Self Portrait, New Morning. After that initial, you know, uh, Dylan returns kind of time period. You know, he he goes back into hibernating again with a several-year break. And so, 73, you know, he's not really back again. Um, I think we're going to start to see that happen more in 74, leading up to 75. Yeah. But these are are his first kind of tentative steps back into the limelight after yet another two, two two-and-a-half-year period of chilling, apparently.
0: I think it's safe to say, with the output that we're about to talk about, that Dylan's return after the 60s really is officially Rocky now. Right. This has not been a smooth landing for him into the 70s. I mean New Morning coming so quickly after Self-Portrait and then another break and then these two releases. One can't help but sort of fantasize about like how cool it would have been if Bob Dylan did uh, John Wesley Harding, let's say, and then was silent until Blood on the Tracks comes out. Like, that would have been what everybody wanted. But, of course, that's a fantasy. And the the real world, it's much messier and uh, more interesting than, than that.
1: It is, yeah. There are more uh, speed bumps and switchbacks along the way. We're not just jumping from one masterpiece to another like we had in 65-66 I did think it was interesting as we're kind of setting up the context that we're discussing these albums in before we actually start talking about them to chat or, or like I, I looked at just some of the other records that came out in 73 because by now we're like we're aging into that kind of quote unquote golden period for classic rock releases where uh, every year has got some sort of uh, titanic genre defining release in it if not multiple. And so you know it's, it's just I, I found it kind of interesting to think about like what what Bob is doing here in 73 in the context of the greater kind of pop rock uh, recorded music scene at large. And so uh, just a couple a couple other 73 records uh, that are, you know, uh, occupy hallowed places or, or some of them ha- more hallowed than others in the canon Berlin, Lou Reed. Right. A a challenging uh, Lou record, Sort of uh,
0: Lou Reed's blood on the tracks, you could say. Yeah,
1: I mean, definitely a a, a significant effort from him, right? Uh, Absolutely. Coming on the heels of Transformer, also. uh, Sort of a fuck you to whatever kind of commercial success he might have gotten off of that. Countdown to Ecstasy, Steely Dan, uh, Paris 1919, John Cale, Future Days, Can, Future
0: Days... I was Uh, just about to say that the thing that really blows my mind (laughs) when we're talking about... Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Dylan coming out in 73 is just also acknowledging that Future Days by Can came out that year. Yeah. It, it's like last night I was actually reading up on uh, the recent earth day of the oldest uh, tortoise in the world. He's 188 years old. His name is Jonathan.
1: I saw and, some uh, posts about that today.
0: It just like you read something like that and it totally messes with your idea of time and what. What how things can be going on simultaneously? That just comes to mind. uh, Talking about Future Days by Can, one of my favorite records, by the way, like a top fiver, coming out this year that we're talking about. Yeah,
1: just it feels like it occupies an alternate universe or something compared to Dylan's output, which is so I don't want to say minor necessarily, but it's so like sort of just weird and kind of. Um, off the beaten path and and uh, un- and not particularly well respected compared with, yeah, something like Future Days or, like, from a, like, big kind of pop hit uh, standpoint, you also had um, uh, Band on the Run and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in 1973. It's, like, these foundational records, some of which are better than others, or I like more than others, at least, but these records that are, like, so vitally important to the development of the style, and Dylan's doing... Soundtracks for uh, Peck and Paw movies. In that
0: example that I brought up of of Jonathan, the old tortoise, um, or for example, the Greenland sharks. Do you know about these? I don't know that I do. These are sharks that can. There's the oldest one that science knows about. Apparently, is over 500 years old, and it's still alive. That can't be real. It's real.
1: So a five hundred year old shark.
0: Five hundred year old shark. Insane. Maybe the better. Which is, that's just makes me like lay awake at night. But um, the Jonathan uh, comparison here with the tortoise, Dylan is like Jonathan because while everybody else is moving faster and living and dying and living and dying, progressing and changing the culture, Dylan, in a way. It seems to be on this slower, steadier path in his artistic development. Right. Ultimately, what's kept him surviving for so long now. Yeah,
1: I mean, he really has paced himself somehow. He's he's stayed on the level. That's a good point. On-the-level mindset.
0: A clue about what the on-the-level mindset might mean to him. Um, I think that the times when Dylan seems to be struggling the most creatively, which we have, I think, yet to truly... Hit, right. are the times when when he's trying to be current in scare quotes when he's attempting some kind of contemporary approach that maybe isn't like his first truest instinct. Right. That's why in the 80s we will see some experimentation that feels maybe a little forced like to be commercial or something. The first five seconds of empire burlesque where you're just like whoa
1: sure when it gets <laughs> <laughs> the as the 80s wear on it, it gets uh it gets even darker but,
0: uh let's bring it on back home ha ha, ha, ha ha to the subject at hand and pat garrett
1: was released first it was so we will uh we will chat about it first. Dylan 73 came out November 19th, it looks like, which makes sense considering this is sort of a cash grab thing. So clearly Columbia just kind of dumped this out in the holiday season uh, so that you would have something to buy, uh, you know, your your brother or something for Christmas.
0: Wouldn't be till decades later that you really had a Bob Dylan album to give for Christmas. And uh, can't wait to talk about that. Eventually.
1: Yeah, um, hopefully we'll get to that by the time Christmas rolls around this year.
0: It's got to be. It's we've gotta somehow. We'll make it happen. We're talking about the Christmas Dylan album, um, Christmas in the
1: in the, in heart. the heart. Yeah, great, uh, great cover <laughs> that in that sleigh. Yeah, yes.
0: it's beautiful. It looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. We should make clear we have not watched the movie yet. Um, I think we've both seen bits of it, but we're saving ourselves to first discuss the album as it stands on its own as a piece of music. And um, next episode, we'll be talking actually about the film, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and uh, in, in more in detail.
1: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll evaluate Dylan's appearance as Alias, which is apparently the name Bob of the Bob Dylan
0: kid. on the big screen. Very
1: exciting stuff.
0: Well, let's st- start with the first song that appears
1: on side A. Main title theme, uh, in parentheses, Billy. Uh, the first note I have for main title theme uh, reads cinematic, comma, vibey.
0: Yes, that's actually <laughs> something that applies to the whole, <laughs> this whole record. is uh, It's very cinematic because it's for a film piece of, of cinema. cinema yeah it's lighthearted but weighty the vibe i i wrote is sort of just like ain't ain't life crazy that's sort of the feeling i got like you're wearily pressing on strumming along it's very simple sort of western tinged uh, of course the movie's a western instrumentation you've got these kind of um There's some percussion, right? Like some sleigh bells or something like that.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the liner notes on uh, our our favorite resource, bobdillon.com. That's apparently a tambourine that we're hearing. The
0: classic instrument, tambourine, and guitar, and bass, and um, it really has a a feeling of sort of waking up in the morning in the West and... um, going who what am i going to do today
1: uh yeah it's uh yeah upbeat and and uh, kind of a nice opener to the to the record i guess uh it sets it sets the theme for the several billy tracks that will follow uh that have lyrics right it's the same right. um um uh, what's what's the right term it's the same like uh Theme, I guess, but yeah, it's the theme of the... Yeah, yeah
0: theme. This happens in a lot of soundtracks. One central theme, so like in The Long Goodbye, another great 70s movie. You've got the title track, The Long Goodbye, actually written by John Williams, um, believe it or not. Oh. Then all these sort of instrumental variations on that song. Right. Variations on a theme. And uh, in this one, this... This flick, the theme is Billy the Kid. He's the main character. Uh, Pat Garrett is the other main character.
1: As noted in the title, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. This seems like sort of the apotheosis of this like cowboy phase that he's, he's gone through in his career at this point, right? That That is starting to be adopted in John Wesley Harding. And now with the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack, it's being taken to like its logical conclusion. When he's literally writing a soundtrack for a cowboy movie. <laughs> cowboy
0: movie, yeah. yeah. It must have just been something that seemed interesting to him uh, to do a Western soundtrack. I think it, Bob Dylan loves movies. That seems clear enough. Don't we all? Well, we love to go and see a film. Yes. So you can picture B- Bob Dylan having a western movie on. Apparently he he was introduced to Peck and Pa his films through The Wild Bunch and was was very impressed by it.
1: From what I saw uh, Dylan was just like saw him in some sort of context and played him a song um and like one song basically as as Peck was gearing up to make the movie and he offered him like the opportunity to record the soundtrack and be in the movie on the spot and a couple of weeks or a month or something later Dylan moved down to Mexico for a couple of months and acted there Right, and then he actually recorded the soundtrack after the after he had done the acting so it wasn't it wasn't the kind of thing where he came to peck and paw with this music already written and you know kind of uh, already formulated he just kind of got looped in roped into whatever was going on and then backfilled um, basically um, and made uh, made the, made the music up after he had had his opportunity to star on the silver screen to not quite stopped. to, to, to be, show up yeah. on the silver screen to right. show up in a couple scenes. but uh, yeah, i mean he he must have enjoyed getting the opportunity to wear a cowboy hat, yes, yes, and hang out in mexico, and um I, you know we haven't seen the movie yet, but maybe he rides a horse at some point, I'm not sure if he does you know, I'm sure there was a horse, I'm sure there was a horse around
0: that's, well there that's true, that's for sure, because yeah, absolutely, there was a horse. I saw some of the movie, but, you know, I think we can just move along. Cantina theme. Yeah. Yet another
1: theme. Uh, This one is Star
0: Wars. This is from the Star Wars movie, the Cantina scene, the famous scene. Yes. Where you have um, Bob Dylan and all the different types of space creatures.
1: Are you aware of what uh, the style of music that the Cantina band in Star Wars is playing is called? No. No pretty it's a pretty good one uh it's called jizz really yeah i'm not i'm not joking
0: is that are you talking about like star wars canon
1: star wars canon yes the the style of music being played in the Mos Eisley cantina by those like thumb looking things with the beady black eyes is called close to jazz uh but instead of jazz they, jizz they they do you
0: think they look like thumbs
1: yeah, right? I mean in my mind at least. I
0: always thought they look a lot more like the head of a penis.
1: Well, I guess that would that would bear that would bear things out with the uh style of music that they were playing, right? I think they're I think the band was literally called Jiz Whalers. Are, are you kidding? I'm looking at pictures
0: of these guys right now. They just look like a bunch of dicks. They look like yeah. circumcised penises in black Nehru jackets. Um anyway, uh that was I hate Star Wars. The uh this song is the Cantina theme in parentheses working for the, working law. For the law.
1: I wrote um Bongos.
0: <laughs> There's Bongos, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, uh I don't know. It's 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 hard to have a a deep sort of evaluation for these sort of um sketches, I would say. Um of these these tracks like this, especially for a guy like Bob who, as as we're all aware, is is so noted for his lyrics. Um, but I don't know I mean it, it's fun to interesting to see him you know getting outside of his comfort zone uh, at, at this point and like still finding new ways to challenge himself and do things unexpectedly. Um, I don't know of many other uh, generation defining recording artists who are recording movie soundtracks in 1973 or at any point really
0: that's sort of the most interesting thing about this record to me so far that it just shows a versatility on his part an open-mindedness and sort of an attitude that says i can give anything a shot i mean you have to imagine that he felt pretty good about his legacy at this point like what do you have to lose you know why not try some new things
1: yeah, I mean, do we, do you think that he, you said legacy there, do you think that he is, he, he feels secure in his legacy at this point? Or do we think that, like, he doesn't really... There's a very interesting quote in
0: in the book, um, or a passage from the book, Bob Dylan, The Recording Sessions, which I have here, by Clinton Halen. Regarding this period, Halen says this, Dylan was clearly getting back to some kind of starting point doing consciously what he used to do unconsciously. Orson Welles was once asked, What happens when one loses the confidence of ignorance? His reply was that one had to ask for the impossible with the same air one did when one didn't realize it was impossible. So much of Dylan's studio work in the 60s and early 70s has the confidence of ignorance, a confidence that only began to fade after desire. I think uh, that's an interesting way to think about Dylan in this period. Is that he still has the confidence of ignorance, that he's still just barreling on, going from the next move to the next move, maybe not thinking or worrying himself too much about his legacy. Is maybe the conclusion we could draw from that?
1: Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. I think, and like we were talking about that a little bit earlier, like '74. You know, the year after this is going to be. Sort of the big blowout, Bob is back, but for real this time. Um, With that, like, Before the Flood tour and record that was explicitly, you know, we'll talk about this when we actually talk about it, but it was explicitly kind of geared as like, you know, here's Bob, he's playing the hits that you know and love. A real three-star performance. A real three-star, yes. But, yeah, Before the Flood uh,
0: is, we'll get to that, but ooh, baby, what a hot, hot live record. It's really,
1: uh, really... Interesting, I would say. But yeah, I mean, so before we before we get to that, like I think you just mentioned uh, in the quote from the book, this is him uh, returning to, you know, some sort of uh, starting point. Um, and it's obviously not anything terribly significant in the overall context of what he's recorded, you know, what he had recorded before this and what he would come to record after it. Um, But it's uh, recording a soundtrack for a movie like this gives him a little bit of freedom and flexibility, um, and and it shakes off some expectations that uh, the audience and the record labels might have. Presumably gave him the freedom or the um, ability to feel like he could fail if that was a concern of his, which it might or might not have been. I think in retrospect, he definitely seems like he wants to act like he was too cool for school
0: yeah that's the reading between the lines of a lot of what we read and chronicles perhaps is right. that he's saying yeah i really didn't care and actually i just didn't want people to bother me right maybe that's partly true but maybe he's also just uh covering up for being a little bit out of it a little off the ball i don't
1: know yeah little little column a little column b as they say
0: what do you think is on column a and column b when people say a "little column A and column B," what kind of thing do you imagine?
1: Mm, I think of like an Excel spreadsheet, but that's because I've got a, a weird sort of autistic. I think event of like the menu like
0: at, at like a Hawaiian barbecue or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that's a,
1: that's a very different or mental like image.
0: At, or like at at um Philippe's or something like that you see the columns on the.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, the column. Yeah, you got the you know, some the roast pickled beef eggs or the pastrami and some uh, corned yeah, beef, coleslaw. Anyway, um, let's just go on to the next song, which would be a return to the first. Um, this time with words, Billy, number one. I like this one.
0: It's Billy as it was meant to be heard. Billy with lyrics about Billy. So you're getting the whole Billy experience. With this song, some of the notes I have are talking about the 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 vibe, the imagery that I was getting from this is like time to get up and make some coffee and put my boots on and throw a bone to my beautiful dog who is my best friend. And if anyone threatens my lifestyle, I'll have to shoot them. And um, the lyrics sort of glamorize Billy; he seems cool and hot. There's no real trace of country Bob country croon. It's sort right. of just like straight uh, singing Bob. Somewhere in between the the country Bob and the nasal New York Bob and uh just sort of a subtle western approach, but it's about how everyone wants Billy to stop being cool, but he's so committed to not doing that.
1: Right. Yeah, Billy is uh, is definitely the the outlaw that Bob is in love with and might want to be, or or might be jealous of himself.
0: If they don't want you to be so free, he says.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it sounded to me like the kind of song that uh, you might hear hear around a campfire, at least the way that it's performed uh, in this version of it. Um, you know, I think the the later versions on the album are a little more interesting to me, actually. But we'll get to those at some point. This is just kind of a very Straight ahead, Bob's Bob's sitting down out there on the range at the end of a long day under the sun with his hat pulled down lower over his eyes and whips out the guitar and he's gonna tell you, he's gonna tell you the tale of Billy. On that note, I, I think we can just sort of smoothly
0: let the night fall. Now that your hat's slouched down. And then you're at the bunkhouse, which is the next song, and I feel like this one is a real night under the stars in the west vibe the desert air is is cold you hear whatever desert animals are in the the distance you can almost hear the wood crackling from the fire in this song and actually at 33 seconds there's uh, somebody coughing
1: I I heard that earlier today. Yeah, I, I I for some reason I I never picked up on that before. But yeah, it it was like uh it it it, it sure enough is there. Which you know I, I guess that that illustrates the uh, attention to detail or or uh, fidelity concerns that or lack thereof that were applied to these recording sessions. This
0: this has a sort of lived in feel. The last song, Billy Number One, has some line about like. Staying up and dealing cards at the hacienda, mm-hmm. and I, I imagine this cut to this song. Then you're at the hacienda, and the the cards are being dealt, and people are drinking whiskey and sort of a calm boys' night.
1: Right? Yeah, boys. Uh, the boys are out on 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 the town or on on Main Street, coughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there, yeah. There's a nice sort of uh, chiming thing going on with the two guitars um it's 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 fun it's fine it uh it it does what it sets out to do it's called the bunkhouse theme it sounds like a theme that would play over a scene of a movie that takes place in a bunkhouse which I'm presuming we will get to see for ourselves when we watch the movie
0: I'm so excited to see the bunkhouse but what what's a what's some place that might be near a bunkhouse
1: uh well maybe a river
0: I was hoping you'd say that because number five is the river theme. There you go. So this has la-la-la
1: type vocals on it. Um, Cla- <laughs> the, the classic la-la-la sound that we all know and love.
0: Yes. And so by that, of course, I mean la-la-la, The literally the onomatopoetic onomatopo- onomatopo- onomatopoeia. Something like that. I wrote that this is a super low-key chiller. You get a slight foretaste, I think, of knocking on heaven's door. Sort of like an all-the-tired horse core type of vibe. <laughs> Just la-la cowboy man. That's what this is
1: to me. Sure. Yeah, there's some more some more country-western kind of uh, uh, vibe from an instrumental standpoint you got the fiddle mm-hmm. and the banjo yeah. on this one. So he's he's definitely got a little more of a, a rootin' tootin' thing going on here. Right. It's changing up the the template of what he had been doing up until this point on the record a little bit, you know, with, with some more interesting or, or at least different instruments, I guess. It's it's a theme for a scene set at a river, so I, I can't wait to see what Pat and or Billy get to get themselves into there.
0: Is it a good time? Is it a bad time? Does one of them swing on a rope and go into the river and then go, ha, 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 and splash the other? Um, Is it that kind of movie? We don't know yet. But we can surmise from the next song that something very specific happens. Which might be chasing turkeys around.
1: Yeah, I do appreciate the uh, just the title of this being "Turkey Chase." It's uh, you know, <laughs> it sounds like some some classic uh, hijinks that you get into out yeah. there in the old west.
0: Sort of like a Scooby Doo hallway. Right. We've got like uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and a big turkey running around going in one door and then out the door across from it. And mm-hmm. um, this song is playing.
1: Yeah. It sort of reminds me a little bit of like the Nashville rag, uh, you know, that, that second track on Nashville skyline. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, it
0: is kind of a rag. This is yeah. a, a bluegrassy grassy uh, rag. I don't know what is, I'm not sure what the official definition of a rag is or what the bluegrass uh western version of a rag might be called but that's what this is.
1: Yeah, just uh, you know, just a group of boys hanging out, getting down with their uh with their instruments. I like once again I like the fiddle line that's going on here. Um it's uh it's <laughs> I'm I'm imagining just some turkeys running around in my mind and laughing to myself uh <laughs> loving it.
0: Yes. Yes. It goes on for kind of quite a while, it feels like, for, for a song of this type. three, 330.
1: Well, you know, turkeys uh, got a lot of energy. Sometimes it takes a little while to catch them.
0: Yeah, turkeys are strong. Well, that turkey is about to slam, gobble first into Heaven's Door. Because the next song is uh, knocking on Heaven's Door. And I didn't realize that that's from the perspective of a turkey until
1: now yeah that's an that's an interesting interpretation I that never Gob- had occurred to me
0: goblin on heaven's Door. <laughs> yeah this is sort of a song about thanksgiving from the turkey's perspective right right this is the most popular song by bob dylan
1: possibly yeah i mean Isn't it's that crazy uh, yeah it is it it's funny how it works like that um if if you asked 10 random people on the street who recorded this song Versus any other track from his discography This one would probably get the most positive IDs I would say Maybe, you know, thanks to Axl Rose alone On Spotify, it's literally number one
0: It's the most popular song by Bob Dylan
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I don't really have a whole lot to say about it This is, uh, you know, one of the few songs That actually has a lyric to it on the record So uh, it is a little more interesting to talk about From that regard But it's just, um, you know, some some tracks to me I think are just... Like beyond, beyond any sort of discussion, it's just uh, it speaks for itself. It's perfect. This song, this
0: I mean, this recording, the original recording, I suppose, of this song, is only two minutes, two thirty. It's funny because it's a song that you could just it just begs to be jammed on forever. Right, you could just go ham on this song till the audience is asleep and then wakes up. And then
1: goes back to sleep. But this keeps it really short and sweet. Yeah, it's basically two verses and one chorus repeated twice. But it, it's got that thing that I think some of the my favorite songs have where it leaves you wanting more. Like any t- time the track ends, I often will just start it over again and maybe even a, a third time. Just because I haven't, I haven't gotten my fill that time. And it seems like the kind of song, like you said, that you could jam on for for quite a bit of time, Um, and if it were recorded that way, I'm sure part of me would like that, because, you know, more of a good thing is is usually a good thing, but uh, I I do still appreciate that, like, it's in and out, and it's over before uh, you get, you know, get bored with it or get tired of it all, and so as soon as it's done, you want to just go back to the beginning and start it all over again.
0: Thankfully, there's plenty of versions of this song to track down by Dylan. Let's see, how how many times has, has Dylan played this live?
1: 400 and something, I think, 430? Let's see.
0: Yeah, so there's probably a few that you could find where he jams out <laughs> slightly longer than that tight 230.
1: Right. Yeah, this, this, does, this is one of the, uh, I think this is the, let's see, it's the last track on uh, Dylan and the Dead, which we will get to somewhere down the road. Yeah, not the best. Uh, but he and, uh, he, he and the boys, uh, extended out to a cool, how long is it? Six, uh, fifty one uh, going almost seven minutes on this.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully that one's good. I've listened to some of Dylan and the dead and, um, some of it's pretty bad.
1: Yeah. That seems to be the general consensus. I, I have not uh, turned that stone over myself yet, but you know, we will, uh, we'll be getting there shortly.
0: That headstone, because because the dead, right? The um, I, gravestone. I get it. Okay, well, we're a- ac- actually right on target for the final track, which is final
1: theme. It is. Um, it has a pan flute on it. That's that's about the extent of my insight.
0: <laughs> yeah, my notes on this were final theme flute. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I don't like this one very much. Yeah. I think
0: it's—I don't know—I don't—I don't care for the flute. It really—it. I just can't get the image out of my head of like some awful early '70s pastel unicorn picture that some woman with flowers in her hair is painted, and you go, "That's really good,"
1: and it's not actually that good. Yeah. Yeah. Final theme, uh, you know, uh, it is what it is. It's the final theme. But not technically the final song on this record. We've got two more bonus cuts-ish, something like that to end on. Ah, yes. Billy 4 and uh,
0: and Billy 7, which are re-recordings of Billy, the song Billy.
1: Alternate takes on the, the tale of Billy. Uh, but yeah, like I think Billy Four is my favorite version of Billy, as far as the Billy's uh, the the Billy Suite goes. It's um, it's really just kind of Bob and a guitar. And when I was looking at the liner notes, it looked like this was recorded in Mexico City, um, when he was down there shooting the motion picture. Yes. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's just Bob and a guitar, really. And it's um, he's got a real kind of he seems more invested in this one. There's sort of a a tragic vibe to it. Which seems to uh, be appropriate for this kind of project. Um, again, not having seen the movie yet, uh, Peck and Paul westerns aren't necessarily the happiest ending kind of things. So, well, the
0: real story of, of Billy and Pat Garrett is not so happy,
1: right? So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think what Dylan's doing on this version is, is the most appropriate way to do it. He's got just more of kind of an emotive sound. Some different lyrics too. He's tweaked.
0: The lyrics are a little tweaked. It seems. Yeah, it goes
1: on for a little bit longer. I think there's more. There's more going on, um, or just further kind of verses. Guns across
0: the river, about to pound you. He says. Yes. Very Freudian imagery. <laughs> That's a good point. And Billy Seven thoughts on on Billy Seven.
1: Billy 7, yeah, it's uh, this is more of a sort of a dirge, I think. It's slower paced, only a couple minutes, and it's kind of cut off in the middle. Uh, he only gets like halfway through the track, uh, at least in terms of the lyrics. Again, you know, kind of an interesting take on this version, but it doesn't do quite as much for me as Billy 4 coming on the heels.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited to see the film, and I think we'll have more to say. Maybe about the music and how it relates to the film, because it's hard to judge a soundtrack on its own sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how how the music kind of uh, uh, takes on a new life when it's presented over the silver screen imagery. Apparently, MGM, the studio that financed it, had after Peck and Pop finished it had like cut it up. Mm -hmm. and uh, rejiggered the music and stuff, and changed it around uh, against Bob and Peckinpah's wishes. But then several years after that, like in the 80s or something, uh, the original director's cut got restored. right? Um, And so so hopefully we'll be able to see it as it was intended by one of the great Western directors and one of the great cowboy songwriters, I guess, as Bob might have liked to have been known.
0: Are we going to watch the director's cut, though? I don't know. Are are, are we going to watch the... Original?
1: I, I I would guess that the director's cut is probably the one that is m- most readily available on all the streaming services and stuff at this point. One would hope. But we might need to do a little digging.
0: We'll watch it any way we can, as they say. Yes. Well, let's uh, put, uh, put away Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid for now. Flip through our records and our LPs and pull out the very ugly cover of Dylan
1: 1973 I think the color cover is actually kind of cool Is it cool to you I think it is it's like you know got kind of a weird like psychedelic uh, coloration of this like profile shot of Dylan and then there's like a weird <laughs> kind of like metallic or like yeah, it's shiny like, curtain in the background It's like
0: metallic goo and then Dylan's face looks like sort of striped With colors like like there's a a reddish orange and a yellow and a purple and a dark purple, you know, classic like ugly 70s colors. It's a weird cover. For sure.
1: It is a weird cover. And, uh, again, it seems to reflect the complete absence of Bob's artistic input in this record that was put out under his name. Because if we compare this to some of his other covers that came out in this uh, this same kind of time frame, uh, both before it, Self Portrait, for instance, and then after it, Planet Waves, um, this, right. uh, this, this does yeah. not fit in, necessarily. No, no.
0: I mean, it's funny to imagine Dylan being upset that this comes out and it doesn't also have a weird rudimentary hand-drawn doodle (laughs) on it like that was just what he wanted his his 70s albums to be at this point is like especially the planet waves cover i remember the first time i even discovered that i was just like this is the cover of a bob dylan album
1: i think the planet waves cover i i I I love it. it I love it, too. I, we, we talked a little bit about the self-portrait cover when we were talking about that, and I was uh, you know a little flippant about the quality of the painting that was going on there. I'm but a big fan. The Planet Waves cover, I think, is a masterpiece.
0: Yeah, both are really cool. I have no idea what it is. It's just like sort of g- the weird, gloopy figures, and it says moon glow moon glow yeah damn
1: it uh it seems like it's just dylan and a couple members of the band maybe uh levon helm or something just vibing in this uh this weird hubist uh something like that anyways uh we'll get to planet waves shortly i can't wait for that one for now we're talking about dylan
0: or as it was known in the uk and elsewhere a fool such as i
1: Yes, uh, off of one of the tracks uh, that uh, that appears on the record. I guess, uh, what do you think? Should we should we spend like a full uh, amount of time talking about this record, or is it something that we want to kind of in in the spirit of it being a slapdash piece of shit, buzz through as best we can?
0: Let's buzz through as quick as we can. All right. Let's just talk about each song briefly. But I'll first off start off by just saying that this is one of the most hated records dylan ever was associated with people hate it and i didn't find it uh hateable honestly listening to it i like couldn't bring myself to feel hate toward any of this it's so benign
1: yeah Um, I I think that that probably has something to do with, you know, our perspective on it versus the perspective of reviewers at the time, Um, you know, uh, because the story of the record was was known and understood. Um, So people understood that this was coming out on Columbia against Bob's wishes without any of his input. And so just based on that alone, if you are a rock critic in 1973, you're going to be kind of predisposed against this, The, the, the label fat cats. Just sweeping up some of Dylan's um, tossed-off, discarded material and repackaging it to make money, basically. So, like in in that kind of context, yeah, like uh, absolutely, I would also hate this record because uh, how, how dare you take the bard's material and just use it to uh, line your pockets? But here in 2020, divorced from that context, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's it's uh, it's benign at worst. I actually kind of like some of the tracks, even. Me too. It feels like the third side of self-portrait to me, basically, which is basically what it is.
0: You know, it's funny that Dylan was even, like, upset, in a way, about Columbia putting this out without his consent, because, as we've discussed on previous episodes, even New Morning was set to just be another self-portrait-type record, (laughs) where he was going to, like, put some of these on there. We talked about on New Morning that... One of the original track listings for that record included Mr. Bojangles and Ira Hayes that show up here. It's like, okay, maybe you're just pissed that you didn't get to pick the cover <laughs> and like do a doodle. But uh, they uh, ended up coming out anyway. But uh, let's begin just to get through this as quickly and um, thoroughly as it deserves with Lily of the West, which I thought sounded... Like, it could have been on John Wesley Harding. Actually,
1: it's um, it, it's a little more rollicking, I would say, and it's a, it's a little more sort of involved uh, and flashy than stuff on John Wesley Harding. But uh, I see what you mean. It, it does kind of fit in that that vibe in terms of the subject matter. I think this is like a. Is this one of the traditional songs, or is this a cover of some other pop song? Do you know? Lily of the West is a traditional
0: Irish folk song. Uh, best known today as an American folk song, so yeah, there you go. It reminded me a little of as I went out one morning, but with kind of a faster clip, a little bit more of a energy. Actually, it's got a good uh, a good amount of of chutzpah, Yeah, say.
1: and it uh, this is the first appearance uh, of what we'll get throughout the entire record, which is um, this uh, th- these uh, backing vocals from a choir of. Women who appeared presumably the same women who sang on like all the tired horses right, um, Maybe. and a couple of those self portrait songs because since these all came from the same sessions, um,
0: yeah no presumably yeah. yes
1: but yeah I, I think it lends uh, it lends a nice feeling to some of these tracks it's a it's a it's a unique kind of sound I think that he clearly didn't really stick with uh, going forward into the future um, and is a bit of an extension of what happened on self portrait but more concentrated because since it's all this kind of cover. Um, uh, these these cover versions of other well-known songs, um, yeah, it's 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 a fun track. It's one of one of the, not maybe not the best song in this record, but also certainly far from the worst.
0: Next one, I can't help uh, falling in love with you. Um, obviously everyone knows this song. Take my hand, take my whole life. To, you yeah, know. that's pretty good. It's got a really nice little trilling organ on mm-hmm. here we got cover mode, Dylan, just in full effect. The Nashville Croon is back, baby. And uh, I actually really like the Spanish guitar-style mm-hmm. solo. Um, and there's actually a little descending organ bit that uh, sounds kind of like Just Like a Woman, mm.
1: which I thought was sort of fun. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, this this one for me, I think, is not... not terribly compelling to it it, it's uh it's a little tossed off sounding at least in terms of the vocal his vocal yeah it doesn't really sound like his heart's in it but again like these these were all sounded these were all like warm-up tracks basically that he was cutting in the studio just to like kind of get in the zone Mm -hmm. when he was recording other stuff so uh we can't we can't fault him for not being into it because he you know he he wasn't into it and he he knew it
0: yeah Nowhere is that more clear than the next track, Sarah J. <laughs> if anything sounds like a warm-up, it's this one. My only note was la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la.
1: Yep, the, the return um, of the la-la-las that we're all uh, but so familiar with.
0: This is also a cover of an old old uh, an old an bluegrass tune, actually. And, you know, I I wonder, maybe he just thought it has Sarah in it and the lyrics, like, I got five kids... So maybe he's just when he was doing it, perhaps he was thinking about his wife Sarah and his three children, and going,
1: "That's me. I'm in the song." He probably saw himself in the lyric. That's a good point. Uh, yeah the the fidelity on this one is is it, it, the whole the whole record doesn't sound particularly good in terms of studio quality, uh, and this one in particular sounds like shit. Um, not not a huge fan. We would never have our podcast
0: sound like shit. Definitely not. Um, the last episode we did sounded like shit. I
1: don't know what you're talking about. I sounded great.
0: You sounded great, but for reasons beyond my control, I sounded like shit. So I just am—I'm getting a little bit uh, sweaty and nervous when you are talking about audio fidelity because I
1: am a sinner. Well, fortunately, that uh, hopefully should not be an issue going forward. Now that you're off the iPad,
0: I only had to use an iPad for that one episode and. I got a new interface. Anyway, the next song is uh, Ira Hayes, which is actually um, a song that I have an interesting um, relationship with only because I was at a record shop in The Village in New York earlier this year. The Village. In the Greenwich Village, in Greenwich (laughs) Village of New York. They might have called it The Village um, back when this came out. The Village, interesting. You know, i'm in the village
1: when i think of the village i, I think of the villages but that's you know just because we live in a shithole world
0: you mean the old people's community of trump people in Florida? yeah exactly
1: the the place where the people are in the golf carts shouting white power at each other
0: right
1: i guess there's also the villages in westfield right in topanga no 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 no
0: i don't want to hear any more about <laughs> this i want to talk about the village we're talking about, you know, the village. like You know, come on. Uh, anyway, I was at a record shop. I don't remember exactly which one in the West Village. I was looking around, leafing through records, and I picked up this one, which is uh, Bitter Tears by Johnny Cash. I was about to put it down, and then the proprietor of the shop was like, what are you doing? Come on, this is, like, so cool. This is a great record. Like, look at him. And he was right, because Johnny Cash looks so cool so cool on this record and um, it's called Bitter, Bitter Tears and um, I believe the subtitle is like songs of the American Indian. It's a record from 1964 that Cash put out that includes his cover of Ira Hayes, a, an older song but all of the songs are about the troubles and the the struggle of the American Indian of the Native peoples and uh, this song, that's where I first heard it is actually spinning my copy of bitter tears.
1: Yeah. I, uh, have just become aware uh, recently that Johnny cash recorded that version of this track also, which uh, I do want to give a spin a couple times. Uh, but the, uh, the, the Dylan version, mm-hmm. I think this is, this is probably my favorite track on the, um, on the record. Um, it's, uh, it's moody. Uh, it's passionate. Uh, Bob has got a, it, it as, as, disinvested or an uninvested, as he sounds on Can't Help Falling in Love and some of the other tracks that we'll get to in a second. Um, he, he does sound very, very into this one. Um, it's sort of a return to that protest singer thing that he was doing, you know, at the beginning of his career. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, it, it seems like the exact type of song, like uh, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, it couldn't be more relevant to today, yeah. to, uh, talking about an individual, someone who has failed by society or in some cases straight up murdered in this case it's about Ira Hayes who was one of the six soldiers who um, raised the flag at Iwo Jima in uh, Japan in the Pacific Theater of World War II and suffered PTSD after the war and descended into alcoholism and um, died of of exposure to the elements and alcohol poisoning Um, in this song says he died in two inches of water in a ditch uh, drowned so yeah uh, Dylan's always had a sympathy in his heart for for individuals who are sort of the victims of their of their country that doesn't respect and support their lives
1: yeah yeah Bob is a Bob's a guy who concerned about the little man you know you can see that going back to the very beginning i always think of that there there's a shot of him in don't look back where he's playing an acoustic guitar in like a farm or like a field somewhere and he's surrounded by several black men uh, in overalls or something um and it's a very striking kind of image clearly obviously set up for uh the recording him aligning himself with uh with vulnerable communities, but um, yeah, th- this song is in that in that same uh, in that same vein. Drunken Ira Hayes, very tragic figure, another victim of American empire and uh, racism, basically. And it's great to hear Bob paying tribute to someone like that.
0: Yeah, I think there's an, there's a nice quote uh, about him. On February second, nineteen fifty five, Hayes was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. At the funeral, a fellow flag raiser René Gagnon, Gagnon Gagnon? I don't know how to say his name. I'm not French. Said of him, let's say he had a little dream in his heart that someday the Indian would be like the white man, be able to walk all over the United States. Mm. It's a poignant epitaph for Ira Hayes. Also, The cover of Bitter Tears by Johnny Cash, who I believe does have some Native American ancestry, that's partly why he wanted to make that record, is um, one of the coolest fucking album covers I've ever seen.
1: It's pretty cool looking, I agree.
0: And this next song also kind of got to me. It's another cover about a sort of down-on-his-luck individual Mr.
1: Bojangles. This one got to you?
0: Yeah, um, I found it to be kind of a melancholy song, (laughs) like maybe the real-life counterpart to the fanciful tambourine man. Apparently the song, which was originally by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, very (laughs) 60s-sounding band name, it was based on a real-life encounter that the, the writer of the song had with an older black, gentleman in a in a jail who had been arrested for public drunkenness or something who was a street performer and called himself Mr. Bojangles I guess not to be identified by the police or whatever right and apparently they got on the topic talking to this guy about his dog who passed away and the the conversation became very heavy and to lighten the mood they asked him to do a, a dance and he did a tap dance number there in the jail and uh, this song is
1: about him. This, <laughs> that is uh, that is the context, I guess. It, it' not a huge fan of this one, gotta say. <laughs> I don't know. It's just. But it's so poignant. Yeah, uh, I, I I I do appreciate the uh, the story and and the uh, emotion invested in it. But I don't know. The the recording just is weird. The pacing is is kind of off to me. This this one. I'm glad that he cut it off New Morning, because uh, as as compromised as that record already was, it would have been even more compromised if this was on it.
0: Yeah, his vocal is kind of unpleasant to listen to on this, I guess. Yeah. If, if you're not really, like, in the pocket, in the Dylan groove when you're hearing it, you might be just kind of put off by the... Mr. Bojangles! Dance! A number six, Mary Ann, the next song after this, it's fine. Yeah. It's filler. It's just sort
1: of a, I, I'll miss you when I go off to see. There's not a whole lot to say about this one either. I think this is another one of the traditional songs uh, following in the footsteps of Sarah Jane, uh, Mary Ann, you know, it uh, it is what it is. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a slide guitar, which is fun, uh, it sounded like. Yeah, cool. um, you know, uh, the, the this record is, is starting to kind of uh, really slow down for me by this point.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, the next song is Big Yellow Taxi. Yeah. Joni Mitchell. You know, that's a fine song, but...
1: Uh... Well, no, the song itself is great. Sure. I, and the Joni Mitchell version is is terrific. But Bob <laughs> doing it in this weird kind of like... like... Paradise, he put up a parking lot. Yeah, like it. It sounds like he's like half invested in it and half like it. It, it almost sounds like there's like two or three instruments missing from the track <laughs> or something. Yeah, and Joni Mitchell lyrics coming out of Bob, um, especially this version of Bob is uh, there, there's something asynchronous about it. So it just doesn't uh, like I don't. It, it doesn't make sense for some reason.
0: I always thought the title of this song was kind of interesting because you know she never mentions a big yellow taxi in the song.
1: Does she not? I don't think she does. I thought there is like a brief tossed-off line about it, but it obviously isn't a focus uh, of the of the lyric.
0: Does she actually mention the taxi?
1: You know, you might... Uh, no, 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 no. Right here. Here we go. Um, one, two, three, four stanzas in. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam and a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Never mind. Uh, it's a good song. Just listen to the Joni Mitchell version. It's easy as that.
0: And, you know... Support the efforts of the indigenous peoples of Hawaii and other uh, places to not have their beautiful paradise be paved over by the Disney Corporation. Yes. Next song, A Fool Such As I. That's how I feel sometimes. I don't know about you, Ian. Boy, do I. It might have been a good uh, name for this record in the States, but, I mean, even so, it's kind of rude. Can you imagine, like, the guy at Columbia? Like, Dylan's like, all right, I'm leaving Columbia and then somebody's like okay cool and then they put out a record without his consent called a fool such as i
1: i really it, that that really would have been quite a subtweet on columbia's part i'm glad that they well i guess they, they did. did release the record as yeah. that in england where, where right? probably but it, yeah.
0: you know as we know about english music fans they are way more neurotic about reading into subtext and shit like that so yeah they, they're
1: all perverts they are
0: um this is fine. For me, if this song w- was on Nashville Skyline or Self Portrait, I would have probably liked it in that context. Fine. Yeah.
1: This is one of the I think the better tracks to me cuz this is a return of the uh Country Croon uh from Nashville Skyline. The CC. Yeah. Which as as we're all aware by now, I'm a big fan of. Um and we've got a little chugle here as well. <laughs> you know, my notes
0: are literally Country Croon chuggle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm glad, I'm glad you're picking up, uh, you're, you're, you're dialed into the Trugal concept by now. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's a trifle, basically, um, better than, uh, the preceding songs that came before it on this side of the record, at least. But, you know, uh, uh it, when I want to go for the country croon, I'm just going to go for National Skyline.
0: Yeah. I wish we had a different name for the country croon, but I guess country croon is like the best name for it.
1: Well, fortunately, we're not really going to have to refer to it too much because he, uh, by by this point, he's really he's really put it away for good.
0: Yeah, he's abandoned his boy when it comes to the country croon. Yeah. And then the ninth song. All right, let's just get to it. Final one. Uh, Spanish is the loving tongue. I my only notes for this are um. Audio Nachos Plate. <laughs> yeah,
1: I kind of, I kind of see what you mean by that. I, I do, I do like the way that the song kind of kicks into this kind of hammed up, almost like campy uh, version of itself halfway through. And we've got some more la la las uh, here as well. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun fine note to end on. I think one of the better uh, tracks on this record again, uh, a highlight as far as highlights on this album go. But but again, not not something that is. Um, Is going to be on any sort of best of playlist for me? No. By any means.
0: That would be truly shocking. (laughs) I guess it being a highlight of this record maybe does put into perspective that this record is not, I don't know, it just almost doesn't even count really in my book. Like it's not canon. I think a main part of of our angle for this whole podcast is um, talking about these records as they are to the ear, to the, the experience of, of seeing these records as articles that were put out by Bob Dylan and taking them on their own terms as such. Hmm. We aren't a professional music historian podcast. We do what we can. We do our little best. But I think ultimately, this is about reckoning with how these things hold up as music albums put out by one guy this one kind of wasn't put out by him
1: yeah yeah that's a good point it uh it is it is a collection of bob songs but it's not a it's not a record by bob dylan the way that everything else is and yeah i mean in terms of what we've got it's uh, as as bob's career has gone on obviously we're well aware of you know the whole bootleg series and stuff and he is one of the few artists who's chaff uh, and discarded material is still worth listening to. So from that standpoint you know there's there is a reason for this album to exist just as this historical kind of curiosity uh, and and maybe one or two of these cover tracks strikes something within you. Uh, I think Ira Hayes does certainly for me. but besides that you know it um, it's not a cohesive artistic statement. Um, It's not uh, an interesting sort of snapshot of any unknown period in his career because, again, these are all just cutting room demos from the um, self-portrait sessions and New Morning. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's inconsequential at the end of the day. Yeah, you, you basically said it. That's that's 1973 for old Bob, uh, so things are about to get a lot more interesting, I think. Um, we've definitely uh, gone through a bit of a, a a valley in terms of the peaks and valleys of Bob's career over the la- these last couple weeks.
0: These two records, it really is just sort of sniffing the panties. You're just <laughs> like, like, where is Bob? He's, he's not fully present with you. We have some things to look forward to, though, because... The next album, Planet Waves, is uh, really where it starts to get real. Er, yes. And then uh, the live record.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Planet Waves is uh, is his first kind of uh, well, we'll we'll talk about it more. But it's definitely a, it's a movement away from this kind of staid cowboy imitation period that he's been in for several years at this point. We're we're seeing him become become a new Bob, but adopt a new version of himself finally. Uh, and obviously kickstart one of the more fertile periods in uh, in the Bob discography. Before we go, uh, how many stars for um, Pat Garrett and for Dylan73?
0: For Pat Garrett, I think I'm inclined to give it two stars because um, I think it's nice. And I think it actually avoids a lot of what I hate sometimes in movie scores, which is this like, Ultra heavy, dead serious grandiosity, which I think can weigh down so many movies. Sure, I actually like that it it has a lightness and a humor to it, while still I think relating a, a sense of lived in real life. And any record that has knocking on heaven's door on it, with also with like nothing really bad. How can I? Uh, give that a one star that's fair so that's two for me on that one and you know i give dylan i can't i don't i feel like i can't give it a star because i don't think that it
1: counts wow so the rare the rare no star
0: yeah i mean it's not like it really offends me that much i just simply don't think it meets the criteria which is that i don't think you know know, bob dylan didn't really have his uh his say in this So. it's a true bootleg f- series for me, sure. like pre-bootleg series. This is this is basically a bootleg record. Like you don't you don't get to make it official just because you're Columbia
1: Records putting his name on it. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, from that uh, that standpoint, I guess Dylan seventy three isn't even. It, it gets an incomplete uh, and not applicable in terms of the rating. For me, uh, Pat Garrett, as much as I would like to give it a two, it's going to have to get a one. Um, sorry. Sorry to be so harsh, Bob. but Go off. just, you know, from, uh, I, I get what you're saying in terms of the evaluating it as a film score. And, it, and, you know, as a film score, I think it does succeed and it's interesting there. But if I'm going to approach this more as like uh, the records of Bob Dylan, uh, which ones do I like? Which ones do I want to listen to? Which ones do I love? You know, this one, despite Heaven's Door being there as an unimpeachable classic touchstone there in the middle, yeah, you know, there's there's just not a whole lot else to keep my interest, unfortunately. So, as a single, Heaven's Door, three stars, no question. As a record, as a cohesive artistic statement, gonna have to gonna have to go with the one.
0: See, I think that you and I just have a very different approach to the three star system, which is mine is much more laissez faire, or, or uh, I kind of put sort of unspoken weight on the context of each record which I respect that you are taking this more seriously actually so hopefully for the listener between our two approaches to the three stars you can kind of deduce something that is actually <laughs> extremely smart yes and sort of dis- and between the two of us we're actually giving you the most accurate possible rating of these records that you're
1: that you're gonna get. If you can, if you can synthesize uh, the opinions of two dumb guys, um, then that will create uh, one opinion of one smart guy,
0: one one man of average intelligence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, th- thank you for listening, um, and I hope you come back next time for the sci-fi album "Planet Waves. Moon Glow, baby, Moonglow. Goodbye. Jokerman.